Welcome to Victor's Children, a podcast from so-called Canada talking socialism from below. My name is David Campfield. I live with my partner and cat in Winnipeg, Manitoba, which is in Treaty 1 territory. The traditional territory of Anishinaabeg, Cree, Oja Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and the homeland of the Métis Nation. All those of us in the Canadian state who aren't Indigenous need to commit ourselves to the struggle against settler colonialism. Victor's Children is a member of the Harbinger Media Network, which is a community working to support and promote left podcasts in Canada. Check out other shows like Tech Won't Save Us, Anti-Girl Boss Socials Club, and Alberta Advantage. Uh, you can look at the show's list at harbingermedianetwork.com. The cost of living is rising faster than it has for decades, squeezing the living standards of working class people who are already burdened with record levels of debt, both mortgage debt, of course, with more people having taken on that, uh, but also lots of other kinds of debt too. Unemployment is lower than it's been for decades, making many workers less afraid of losing their jobs. And employers in some sectors are complaining about being unable to fill positions. That's all over the media these days. All in all, there's been more talk of late about what's happening on the labor front in so-called Canada. And I think when we look at widely publicized events in the U.S., such as workers winning union certification votes at a growing number of Starbucks stores and at an Amazon warehouse in New York City, um, I think that those events are also contributing to the interest and discussion in this country. And then if we look at the data for strikes for the first half of 2022, we see some interesting things. Now, if we look at the trend for the first six months, uh, if it continues at the same rate for the rest of the year, the total number of people who will be off the job at some point in a strike or walkout will actually be lower than in 2021. There have not been many strikes that have been involving a very large number of people. But if we look more closely, if we look at the number of strikes and walkouts, and if they continue at the same rate for the rest of the year, Mm -hmm. there will actually be more work stoppages, most of them strikes, this year than in any year since 2012. Even more noteworthy, if we look just at the first six months of 2022, and we look at the number of person days, that's the number of people on strike or locked out times the number of days not worked. So if you have 10 workers on strike for 10 days, it's 100 person days. If you look at that data um, for, the, for the first six months of the year, um, we, what we see is that the number of person days not worked uh, is in fact larger um, than in any year since 2015, just looking at the first six months of this year. And if we keep on with the same pattern for the whole year, the number of person days not worked in 2022 will be the highest since 2005. And then when we break the data down into private sector and public sector, remember the private sector is mostly non-unionized workers and the public sector is highly unionized. What really stands out is that in the public sector, we're on track to having more actual stoppages than last year, but with a lot fewer workers involved. But in the private sector, if the trend for the first six months of this year continues, the number of strikes will be a bit higher than last year, but the number of workers involved will be the highest since 2013. And most strikingly, the number of person days would be the highest since 1990. So what's happening underneath all this? I've got two guests joining me to talk about it on this episode. So could you introduce yourselves to listeners, please? Sure, we'll go from, sure. west, from west to east. Okay, sounds good. Uh, thanks, David. So uh, my name's uh, Tara Olive-Tree-Erkey, and... Uh, I'm use the pronouns they, them, and I'm coming to you today from the unceded territories of the Lekwungen-speaking peoples, um, known uh, known by many as the Victoria. 
Um, and uh, I'm a teacher and a member of the BC Teachers Federation uh, and pretty active in my union, um, trade union activist and also a, a climate activist. Hi, I'm Doug Nesbitt. I am a co-founder of rankandfile.ca. I've been in and out of the labor movement for about 20 years now as an activist, an organizer, a researcher. I'm also a labor historian by training. And uh, I, I come from, well, I live in eastern Ontario now. I'm all over the place over here. Okay, thanks both. So we're not going to try to discuss all aspects of working class life today. We don't have nearly enough time for that. And it's worth noting as well that you know none of us here are able to draw on the experiences of a whole large number of people from across the working class. In order to really do that, we would have to be part of some kind of larger organization which had members in every sector of the class in every region. And unfortunately, there is no such organization in this society. So it's always important to acknowledge this and to acknowledge how little we can actually get from the mainstream media and, and from left media in terms of understanding what's happening in, in the working class. So with all that in mind, we're going to be focusing today on what's going on for employed people in relation to pay and working conditions. But I want to start with a, a kind of an open question for you both. What stands out to you in terms of what the working class broadly understood is experiencing um, today? And what's different about the situation now compared to conditions in 2020 and 2021, the first two years of the pandemic? Well, uh, I definitely think there's been a, a change uh, and the statistics that you've mentioned uh, can demonstrate that the last six months there has been uh, an increase in confidence among workers, especially here in southern Ontario in the and into Quebec as well in the private sector. And it's quite a change from what happened in uh, the first couple of years of the pandemic or the first year and a half, which was uh, there was a lot of confusion and paralysis and disorientation, uh, especially within organized labor and lots of people looking for leadership and it's and it never really materializing around any kind of coherent plan, whether it was a plan around PPE right at the beginning of, of uh, the pandemic or a kind of strategy around um, paid sick days or more broadly healthcare questions. Uh, and a lot of those problems have just allowed to been allowed to fester. And now with inflation kicking in and um, just after a couple of years of these deteriorating work conditions, I think that a lot of people have, have become pretty fed up. And of course, the, t the tight labor market that exists also means that workers have for the first time, I feel like in uh, at least a decade, have some kind of labor market leverage over employers. Yeah, I'd agree. I think the um, the dissipation of a level of fear has had a massive impact on confidence, and it's it's amazing because it seems to be a you know a global phenomenon. I mean, uh, we're seeing it all over the place. Um, yeah, real shift from a period initially of kind of well, shock. I mean, just like folks were in shock <laughs> from all aspects of the pandemic. Um, but now kind of coming out of that, it's almost like uh, there has been something valuable in the sense of, um, you know, what what what's possible or was deemed possible was really shifted in the pandemic. Um, and so, you know, if you can have uh, government support programs come in, if you can have lockdowns, if you can have all these dramatic changes 
so quickly, then it's also set the possibility, I think, of, you know, really substantive changes uh, that benefit working people um, being there in the realm of the possible. Um, and so that combined with that dissipation of fear because of the tight labor market has just really opened the doors to a whole new conversation where, um, you know, it, it, people people feel like the, you know, the, the two years of the billionaires <laughs> reaping the benefit uh, of the crisis is absolutely wrong. And there's no reason that we should be putting up from it. Um, and if people aren't as afraid, then the tools that, you know, workers are able to use to actually leverage some power um, feel much more accessible as well. So I think that's kind of what we're witnessing. Yeah, I would add to that. The other aspect that happened as well that we should acknowledge is is the um, initial sense of social solidarity and cooperation that mm -hmm. came at the outset of the pandemic and how quickly that disintegrated within a couple of months around the the appalling conditions in long-term care but also in meatpacking and and farming and a whole bunch of other sectors uh, and and the cartel activity of the grocery companies repealing uh, the the extra bonus pay all on the same day and then claiming that it wasn't a, a conspiracy by these corporations and then the just the the following months and now two years of uh, a really rapacious corporate uh, plunder of, of the public purse and, and, and getting away with all sorts of things, while a lot of people are, are going through a whole lot of hardship and their lives are still in turmoil two years into the pandemic, the, mm -hmm. the injustices are just so blatant at this point that uh, I think a lot of people, yes, they've lost that fear and they're just fed up. And uh, right now, I think people are starting to see that there are some opportunities and, and a necessity to fight, especially around inflation. I think there's also a real sense of social solidarity. Like I think when we've seen actions, there's been incredible support for it. So I think also that, you know, there was a bit of an anxiousness, I think, amongst those workers who during a downturn time were willing to kind of step up and put up a fight because when you're the only ones doing it, it, you know, you feel like you're asking for something that's out of, out of, you know, you're not normal. You're the militant ones. You're, you're, you know, you're asking for too much. I don't, that sense has completely disappeared. I think now everywhere you look, you know, when workers are on strike, it's, uh, you know, massive support from fellow workers and, uh, you know, in a way it's, it's fascinating. Like the ruling class really doesn't know how to respond when, uh, they go out and sort of, you know, ask a person on the street how they feel about, you know, I was in London a couple months ago. How do you feel about the tube being shut down, which is a massively disruptive uh, kind of action? And, you know, they ask 15 people and they're all like, yeah, well, of course, you know, that they deserve it. And look what the government's done. And, you know, you know, in horror at the scandals from Boris Johnson and our other leaders. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so just that sense, that sense of solidarity, I think, is really strong right now. And uh, yeah, and and helping that sense of confidence. And of course, people are all experiencing inflation in different ways, right? Rising, the rising cost of living is something which affects people across sectors. So obviously, some people are more affected than than others. Um, and yet, politically, it's interesting to think about the way that 
there's not really, um, well, because of the way that the, the NDP has become even more subordinated to the liberals, you know, with the way keeping the federal government in office, um, I think that the, the really clear public criticism of the government is coming mainly from the right, right? Sometimes from the, the, the hard right and the far right. Um, and so that's, I think, happening at the same time as all the things that you've been talking about. And it, it's worthy of thinking about how that might fit in. It's quite concerning, right? When the very public visible um, criticism of the government that's overall responsible for the situation is, you know, that criticism is, is coming from the convoy and its fellow travelers and, you know, Pierre Polyevra and so on. So also part of the mix. Uh, Although if I might say, I mean, we just have a little bright light happen here with uh, Anjali Apadurai jumping in the race for, uh, you know, the new leader of the BCNDP, unafraid to come out with that, um, you know, initial initial video release just going at the current NDP government on all their policies that matter, like all the things that that the Polyevs are trying to tap into, right? The housing and the cost of living. And and there she is out on the picket lines with the BCGEU this week. So um, you know, hopefully we see we see more of that, right? Some some folks on the left unafraid to criticize those left parties that uh, you know may have are in power, have been in power, and, you know, haven't been dealing with those issues that matter to working class people. Okay, thanks for that. Uh, Any thoughts, then, if we're going to zero in on the way that non-unionized workers um, are responding, what they're doing in these conditions of tighter labor markets and higher inflation? What do you see out there? Well, I mean, in the the absence of actually unionizing the solution is is mainly an individual solution. I know there was a lot of talk, especially in the fall, about this thing called the Great Resignation. I know it was also focused in the United States, but there was that discussion here in Canada, and and uh, there is also a uh, you know, employers in many different sectors claiming they can't. Uh, you know, there's labor shortages, and there's many examples of institutions and and uh, sectors that are in big trouble because of those labor shortages. So. At this point, if you're not in a union and you're not being paid well enough, there's going to be a higher paying job out there. And also, they are the, it is the situation where you can uh, bargain individually with an employer if they're really desperate for somebody. You can get the, the pay bumped up if you ask for it or, or some kind of uh, benefit, some kind of advantage. You have more leverage that way. Um, in the United States, the, the unionization is, I mean, really obvious that there is a generation of people who are working in uh, Amazon and Starbucks. And and then there's a host of other union drives that are happening that just aren't getting the headlines as well in those sorts of um, workplaces. And it's, it's uh, there, there are signs that it exists here. There's a similar sentiment with the Starbucks efforts in BC and Alberta, and also the Amazon efforts by the Teamsters and in uh, Alberta as well and Southern Ontario. And, I'll, and there's, I believe CSN is also quite active in uh, Montreal with Amazon. So there are efforts to unionize, but there, there isn't anything on the scale uh, that we've seen with the Starbucks campaign in the United States. So I just don't think that there, non-union people necessarily have the opportunity provided to them by kind of large scale union drive that uh, obviously Workers United uh, <laughs> has accomplished already with Starbucks in the U.S., so yeah, without without unions, I think people are just going to vote with their feet or bargain with their feet, go to the next employer, try and get more pay. It's actually, I mean, 
it's inspiring that these union drives are happening when you can just walk away, actually, um, but that people actually see the benefit of not doing that, of doing the organizing work instead. Um, and yeah, it's uh, it's it's hard to get a sense of the degree to which it. We haven't seen a lot of visible, I think, manifestations of that spillover from the states here yet. But uh, you know, I have had conversations with folks. Some of those are multinational um, companies. Like I know in Amazon, for instance, you know, they have a Vancouver office, and there's people in the Vancouver office who are. Uh, you know, on Zoom calls, talking to folks in the States and inviting Chris Smalls or, or whomever to, um, you know, chat with them. So I, I feel like those, uh, that, that underground percolation is, is actually starting, but it hasn't come to a place yet where we've seen, yeah, really open organizing drives yet here, uh, here in Canada. But uh, yeah, hopefully, hopefully that's what's to come because that's what we need. And I think, Doug's right. Like there's the whole, a whole industry, right? It's it's like in the, you know, in the in the 30s, you had that whole layer of unskilled workers and the entire auto industry and stuff that just it was on fire and you know in a very short period of time changed dramatically. And it seems like there's the potential for um, you know all that logistics work and uh, and and the service industry to go in that direction too. Um, and that would be incredibly exciting. And yeah, the, the stuff in the States is, I mean, folks should uh, just uh, open a Twitter account and follow some of the Starbucks because every single day a new store is organizing and those folks are so happy and excited. And it is really like um, just heartwarming and, and it's moved all over the place. There's, you know, folks working for the Apple stores, there's Trader Joe's like, uh, you know, constantly you're hearing about some new area um, where that momentum is uh, is manifesting itself. Super exciting. Yeah, and people who might be interested in looking more at what's going on in the U.S. There are lots, of course, of podcasts and other things people can check out. Certainly, videos from the Labor Notes conference um, that happened this year, which was the largest ever, four thousand people, um, are worth having a look at. But let's turn to look at unionized workers um, in this country about course, about three in 10 people who work for wages are unionized. What do you see happening in collective bargaining and any thoughts on what lies ahead on that front? Well, oh, you want to go ahead, Doug? You go ahead. Okay. I just, I mean, it's, who cannot want to talk about what's happening here? Um, yeah, so we've got picket lines as we speak. The um, you know the public well public sector is is quite exciting right now. So after uh, a long period of not very much happening and um, you know years and years and years of net zero and uh, you know then an NDP government who offered net zero but just didn't call it that and then you know folks finally thinking that we're going to put up a bit of a fight um, and then COVID happening and pretty much every public sector union just signed off on an extension um, unsettled last round. Uh, finally, we see uh, a sort of a, a more militant and also a more coordinated approach coming from the public sector. So there have been regular talks, um, which, you know, there isn't generally coordination here on the level, you know, that you see in Quebec, for example. Um, but that, that coordination 
is taking place. Uh, it's not um, formalized, but it's happening. Um, and pretty much the whole public sector is lined up. The GEU always goes first. Um, and, uh, and, and they're out on the picket lines as we speak. Uh, we were offered, you know, a paltry sum initially, 1.75, 2, and 2, uh, when CPI print is, I think, uh, still at about over 7, 7.5%, and reached as high as 8. Um, so an insulting pay cut. I love the slogan that the GHE has put out, fight for COLA. I think that's great. Fight for a cost of living adjustment. Um, and just yesterday, I believe the news came out that the PEA, which are a group of um, professional public employees, uh, are going to be uh, stepping out on the picket line too. I know as a teacher, we've got a meeting coming up next week uh, to talk about bargaining, and I'm sure it will be on the agenda to uh, discuss, you know, where we fit in as September rolls around. Um, and every other public uh, sector union, QP, and so on, are all going to be having the same discussions this fall um, about how we can build that support. So, uh, you know, who, who knows what that's going to look like, but the... Um, you know, the cards are in play for something pretty substantive. And, uh, you know, the feeling is that, you know, COLA should be the floor, right? <laughs> um, and uh, and right now the government's pretty far from that. So we'll see where that goes. Yeah, there's a real parallel in Ontario now, although we're not at the point of a big strike, uh, like with the BCGEU, but um, there's finally shaping up to be a public sector fight against Ford in the education sector with the um, the school board workers. So basically, everyone who's working at the in the in the public and Catholic and and other school board systems here in Ontario, our complex array of boards. Um, anyone who's basically not a teacher uh, is in bargaining right now, and then the teachers are also heading into bargaining as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, Ontario has been the, the public sector was really cowed here in Ontario by Bill 124, which Ford passed in the, I'm going to say, I think it was fall of 2019, November 2019, which capped uh, pay increases at 1% per year for three years. And uh, a lot of unions accepted, uh, big unions, so that the teachers accepted that. Um, the OPS, the, the Ontario Public Service, just accepted that earlier this year. Um, and now the school board workers are put, they're outside of that framework now uh, because it's expiring. And so they're, it has expired. So they're pushing for um, some uh, significant wage increases and it's really shaping up to be a, a battle. Even in the last round, it really went right down to the wire. Uh, and this time, I think that there is a, a shift in the mood against Ford uh, the the pause that happened during the pandemic, the worst of the pandemic, and the uh, and the effects of Bill 124 have finally lifted. And there is also just the the disarray of the electoral strategy. What that did to labor uh, during the first term of Ford was a real problem. The I mean, I don't want to get sidetracked, but the a lot of unions pin their hopes on the NDP becoming the new government. And now that that has uh, not materialized and not materialized by a mile, um, the the unions now have to actually look forward at, directly and say, okay, well, we actually have to deal with him over the next four years. So it looks like there's something really shaping up in the public sector here. The other opportunities in the private sector are uh, 
Well, yes, COLA has suddenly come back into uh, discussions in the labor movement when even a year ago you could have asked the question, whatever happened to COLA? Does anyone remember COLA? And the, the resurrection of that demand is pretty incredible. And it opens up, also opens up new opportunities to uh, attack two-tier contracts, especially mm -hmm. in the private sector. Uh, now that inflation is so high and there's this demand uh, for labor, this, this labor shortage, uh, this could be a real great opportunity for some unions to, to get rid of those uh, really poisonous contracts that have had such a detrimental effect on unity in workplaces themselves. Like, what's the point of the union if I just get less than the person beside me who's doing the same job? But, and uh, I think unions and activists especially, that, that could be the target for the next round of bargaining. So while these conditions last, and that's kind of a question of how long they will last, uh, those opportunities definitely have to be seized upon if they can. Well, with that in mind, any thoughts about what can be done to actually maximize workers' bargaining power at the moment in terms of, uh, we've talked about some issues, but um, what about tactics and methods that people can use um, to get as much as possible while the balance of forces is relatively more favorable? We'd have to go with the, the BC tradition of secondary picketing, right? The, the the idea that with supply chains being so brittle and weak right now, uh, there's this added vulnerability that's not just the labor market being really tight. It's this it's this um, this uh, this whole system of production and distribution and, and, and uh, consumption that has has ground to a halt in so many respects. Like just yesterday on the news, I discovered that. Uh, children's Tylenol is now being taken off the shelves, at least here in Ontario, because there are supply chain issues and they're going to have to, uh, they're only going to distribute them through um, uh, a doctor's prescription, which if you have a kid with a fever, you can't just go and get a prescription for children's Tylenol. It's a, this absurd problem that we've run into with the supply chains. So that's an opportunity for labor to really um, cause some damage uh, with employers and raise the stakes through secondary picketing. And I would also add just uh, the lesson of the Starbucks and Amazon workers who are unionizing is it's really the opportunity for unions to uh, and union activists to push their unions to really invest into organizing. Uh, as there are many organizing departments in many unions, but the budgets that they operate with are actually quite small. There are very few unions that have the type of investment into organizing that's required to deal with the size of these corporations that we're taking on. I think, yeah, a couple of things. I mean, I think, you know, we talked about the fear kind of dissipating. You know, there's almost like we need another level, though, of um, shift in terms of confidence. And I think that's going to take some solid wins. I think what the labor movement needs is some really good wins. And, you know, you think about other periods of time, um, you have a good win, and then the union after feels confident to go for something beyond that, right? Um, we've had 30, 40 years of kind of the opposite. Um, you know, it's always been, we asked for too much, we have to ask for a little less, and um, that kind of mentality trickling down. Uh, you know, I think in this situation where we actually have, um, you know, we have bargaining power, the challenge is going to be to shift organizations that have, um, you know, really not exercised that power and that leverage 
And so don't necessarily have that um, kind of institutional memory about uh, striking and taking action and um, and the success that can come from that. And so we're going to need a, a few of those, I think, in order to kind of flip that narrative and to build that confidence. That really is where what we're seeing in the States um, is, is super inspiring. Although even there, like it has to go also from organizing to actually winning games, like winning contracts uh, and winning games. So um, you know, I think we're at the precipice where that's possible and uh, it'll be, um, you know, it's the job for all of us who are, uh, who are in those unions and active in those unions to really kind of sense that that possibility is there and that now is actually the time when we should be putting those arguments forward and really, and hearkening back to those periods of history and saying, you know, a different a different narrative is possible just because we've had 30 really challenging years doesn't mean that that's what the future looks like forever, that things can things can shift and the balance of power can shift. I think uh, Doug's point about organizing is really important. I know, um, you know, probably many of your listeners have um participated in or at least heard about the organizing for power series that um, Jane McAlevey has done with um, the Rosa Luxemburg Stiftung. I know in, in my union, you know, dozens and dozens of uh, activists have actually gone through that training. I was, um, I was brought into our biggest local, the Surrey local last year to, to adapt that training to uh, those reps there. And one of the things we talk about is like, what did what does it look like like we can have a platform we can have a set of demands we can know what we need but that's not enough we actually have to say who has the power in this situation and how do you leverage that power um and what are the periods of time when people did that and what was the outcome then um so i think it's really great that those conversations have been taking place because that's kind of like setting the stage for uh, winning a layer of people over that are going to be pushing that within their internal structures and their unions to make those kind of decisions to really push forward on that. So, you know, the possibility is there, I think, um, but that doesn't mean <laughs> that there isn't work to do to make those things happen. So um, I think those of us who have a sense really have a job to do to be um, to bring, to be bringing those examples in, to be making those arguments um, and to be, yeah, really, um, you know, focused on the inspiration that's out there uh, to, to get to get ourselves out on the streets and move from not just a good plan, but building the power to make the plan um, happen. I would, I would add, and I think this was mentioned earlier, that the mood or just the general mood has changed. And that old feeling of when you're in a union that you're in a bunker hiding from the public when you're involved in bargaining or or leading up to a strike date that has dissolved and there is a you know there is that sense of solidarity out there that if someone is on strike right now they're not going to be dismissed out of hand as being <laughs> greedy those those arguments don't fly and uh yeah it has opened up dangers as well which is why people like Ford and Quali Evra are now courting openly uh, working people and unionized union members. And uh, I mean, they see how popular those uh, criticisms are and, and demands are of, of this, um, you know, these massive wage cuts that millions of people are taking simply because prices are going up and there's just nothing being done about it. 
uh, and, and it's really left up to workers to actually deal with it directly. Yeah, the, the, the mood is there. Uh, again, just to hearken to um, another global example in the UK, Mick Lynch, who's uh, the spokesperson for the, um, the rail workers. I mean, he's become like a social media phenomenon. <laughs> Everybody loves him. And, and uh, you know, and not just folks in the UK, like, um, you know, my, my, my teacher colleagues are sending me his videos saying, you know, listen to this guy. This is so fantastic. And, and what's he talking about? Like workers have it for far too long. Workers have just taken the brunt and we took the brunt in COVID and we take the risks. And you know what? The billionaires are out there just reaping in the profits. Forget about a wage price uh, spiral. This has been a profit price spiral and it's absolutely unfair. Um, you know, and it's time that we push back on that. And that that message is just electric to a whole new generation of folks. And uh, yeah, so definitely like um, the potential is really there for us to make some, some substantive gains. Well, let's... Uh talk a little bit about what's happening in terms of uh, political economy, because I think we can see the Bank of Canada has been pushing up interest rates, making it more expensive for companies to borrow money, which is going to trigger an economic slowdown and, and layoffs. Um, and this is not, not an accident. I mean, it will make it harder for workers to push for higher wages or other gains. It's going to tilt the balance of power further towards capitalists and, and bosses in the public sector. Of course, we don't we can't predict this in, in detail how severe it's going to be and so on. But, um, you know, I think when there's a recession, it won't, of course, just be the result of higher interest rates. We need to remember that before the pandemic hit in 2020, uh, recession was developing at the time. And then Todd Gordon and Jeff McCormick wrote a very good Marxist analysis, which was published in the magazine Briar Patch, in which they argued that global capitalism, in their words, was on the precipice of another downturn. And Canadian capitalism has itself entered a period of serious volatility the consequences of which could be both economically and politically severe. And at the time they wrote that profitable avenues for new business investment have been waning for well over a decade. And this has translated into growing political economic instability in the country as employment and output stagnated and a debt-driven real estate boom grew to never before seen proportions. And the problems that you know today capitalists face, problems generated by the way that capitalism itself operates, its own laws of motion, those problems didn't disappear uh, just because governments got massive amounts of, sorry, the businesses got lots of government aid uh, during the pandemic. Of course, they did through the so-called wage subsidy. Um, many companies have been staying afloat only because of the very low interest rates, which they were able to borrow money with. Uh, and those very low interest rates are now vanishing. So we, I think, face the prospect of a recession, the depth of which we, you know, we don't know yet. Uh, what should workers do? What should unions do faced with this uh, direction of things? I think... You know, we don't, I mean, I, I kind of agree with your analysis, but I also think that we don't know, you know, when, <laughs> uh, when things are going to, uh, going to shift. I mean, certainly in terms of what, um, you know, what, what I, the kind of discussions that I'm having with my colleagues is that, uh, we shouldn't be waiting. Um, and that's part of the reason why we shouldn't be waiting. We actually need to, there's like an opportunity that should be seized right now, um, but, uh, you know, but that said, also, I, you know, we need to shift the dialogue bigger. Like the reality is, is that we're, we are entering a period of multi-crisis, right? And it's not just that there's going to be a new economic crisis. Um, you know, we've had the pandemic, we have the climate crisis. I mean, we have a housing crisis, like we have 
we we have crisis upon crisis, and um, you know what what we really need to do is to to actually learn that that leveraging our power can actually influence those crises, and that we don't have to fall into a dynamic where um, you know Naomi Klein right talks about how the ruling class takes advantage of these crises in order to um, create structural shifts that will uh, you know benefit. Um, you know, the billionaire class at the expense of workers. Well, that's not the only, <laughs> that's not the only response that can take place in a period of crisis. Um, and I think if we can, um, we can appreciate the power that we have, then, uh, you know, there's kind of like a flip way of looking at it is that there's actually an opportunity there too, is that if, if workers can win some lessons by winning, you know, winning COLA and winning wage demands, uh, through this period of time, we can actually then translate those wins into wins on other things that really matter for working class people, uh, like dealing with the climate crisis, like dealing with the healthcare uh, crisis that we're in, like dealing with um, housing. And we're going to have to we're going to have to be doing that, right? Because um, those are coming, <laughs> yeah, no matter what. So I don't think um, you know I don't think uh, the, a looming recession like. It's not something to say, oh, therefore, let's put our heads in the sand. It's actually like, well, you know what? Yeah, we live in a world of crisis. And this is absolutely one more reason why workers have to understand the power that we have and that we're actually the only agency that's capable of transforming things in a way that's going to be beneficial and lead to the kind of world we want. And again, there's a, a fantastic new opening for ideas, right, on system change and revolution and really the bigger questions um, and uh, and the incredible role that workers and working, uh, in, you know, trade unions and, and working class institutions can play is that critical piece that's been missing, which is leveraging power to actually make those things happen. I completely agree. The, the question about power is so central to what's going on. And the, the difficulty for labor is making that transition out of uh, the, the clash with the employer, whether it's public or private sector, in the realm of collective bargaining and, and strikes and lockouts, and then graduating or moving the union and the membership with it uh, to, a, to a broader political questions that the unions should consider as areas that they can be bargaining around uh, whether or not it exists in a formal collective agreement. The healthcare crisis that's going on in Canada really, and, and, on, and my experience here in Ontario especially, is, is one of those uh, areas that cries out for um, a, a, some kind of radical solution from labor, or maybe not even solution, but intervention that can leverage uh, power leverage the power of workers and and force the the Ford government and other provincial governments and the federal government on in a new direction around the healthcare question because right now uh, the crisis is just allowed to fester because the obvious plan is that uh, you know they're starting now with day surgeries those are being contracted out to clinics so they're the piecemeal they're using the the, the crisis in healthcare and allowing it to persist uh, in order to do that in order to pursue their privatization agenda. And there's been no response on that front from labor that uses the power of workers themselves. In Ontario, we have anti 
strike law, there are strike bans in the healthcare sector, specifically hospitals and long-term care. And that is a huge obstacle. So uh, one of the things, one of the threads I think that connects the, the local bargaining situation with the bigger questions of, uh, you might call the, the level of like, policy, um, is the right to strike, is the recovery of uh, the political strike and the idea of using the withdrawal of labor and pickets to disrupt the direction of our governments on a whole host of issues, whether it's healthcare or climate change or housing or what have you. Uh, if labor can start engaging on those questions using its muscle there and withdrawing labor, then there is a new power. I mean, it will be the beginning of a new power in society that can contend with the, the dominating forces right now. Okay, well, maybe we could talk just a little bit uh, now that we're moving towards the end about official politics in the NDP, because it remains the case that many union leaders are telling people that if they want a better deal for the working class, you know, that's not something they're going to win through their own power. Um, they say the solution is to vote NDP in the next election. So given what we've been talking about, where do you see the NDP fitting in this picture? Um, I don't mean necessarily <laughs> that they're going to move things forward, but, but analyzing what role they do play in the situation that we're in um, and how people can relate to it. And obviously, because Doug, you're in Ontario where the NDP just uh, did very poorly, and Tara, you're in a situation where the NDP is actually the provincial government, it'd be interesting to hear your contrasting uh, thoughts on this, or thoughts on the contrasting situations. Well, there's no question that having the NDP in power during COVID was incredibly um, uh, challenging for the labor movement. Like, uh, it was demobilizing. Unions were afraid to do anything but sit on committees where they weren't listened to. And I guess what's interesting is that that did create some pressure from below, like it actually activated, I think, a layer um, of the membership who, uh, you know, were really seriously upset. Like you're, you're, you know, you brought it up at the beginning there, Doug, around PPE and that kind of thing, you know, um, you know, your, your own health, your family's health and lives are at stake. And you see, uh, you see the leadership, you know, send out a memo saying we sat on this committee and we said all these things, but, you know, they still won't do it. I mean, our union spent a year trying to get masks in classrooms, you know, <laughs> it was <laughs> unbelievable. And these are our friends that we're supposed to be mobilizing for. Now, in our situation, that's compounded with the climate crisis, which has really created a wedge in terms of where, you know, quote unquote, the left is in electoral politics here, because, um, you know, the NDP, when they came into power, you know, revisited Site C, but decided to go ahead. They're uh, full on board with LNG. So, um, Can you, you just know, explain what those things are for people who don't oh. uh, Oh. Yeah, sorry. So Site C is a big mega dam project that was initiated by the um, by the previous government. That's going to have terrible consequences in terms of flooding all kinds of farmland and um, uh, LNG is a liquid uh, liquefied natural gas, and it's a major new expansion of the fossil fuel industry in British Columbia. Again, uh, really started under the previous Liberal government. Um, but the NDP has, you know, just uh, just bought right into it. And um, all the projections around uh, climate, I mean, 
you know, we're, we're becoming up there with Alberta and the tar sands really in terms of, you know, perhaps greatest climate pariahs on the planet. Uh, and yet this is a government that claims to actually care about the environment and so on. So that's just created this massive um, division and, and many, many people have left the NDP and are searching for a new home. You know, some have gone to the Green Party. Um, you know, some have focused their energies uh, more with NGOs and environmental organizations and uh, climate activism. So that kind of, um, you know, challenge in terms of where people are at with the NDP was already there. And then, you know, COVID kind of uh, compounded that. So, yeah, so the party has a real, pro you know, they have a real credibility problem in terms of a layer of folks on the left of the party or, um, uh, you know, ex-party members um, are already uh, disenchanted um, and understanding that actually you have to use some social power to actually win something uh, if if you're going to see any gains. Um, and as, as I mentioned, we're, we're now in an even more interesting situation because the, the, the leader, John Horgan, has just resigned. So there's going to be a, a leadership uh, campaign. And I mean, it's kind of fascinating because up until about a week ago, the, um, you know, the anointed, <laughs> the party anointed successor, David Eby, was running uncontested. And now all of a sudden, a, a pretty high profile um, uh, climate activist has joined the race uh, who who ran actually federally. So she kind of comes from the federal wing of the party. Um, but very interestingly, you know, not afraid to just put all those criticisms out there and on the table. So, um, yeah, so that's kind of a, an interesting play. I mean, of course, there's always the danger when you when there's some kind of electoral interest that that will actually pull people away from uh, you know, mobilizing. Um, although I, I really, I'm not getting that sense right now. I um, th th that race will be interesting, but it, but people uh, people in the public sector who've been gearing up for contract negotiations for over a year, I don't believe that actually that's gonna gonna derail things in that way. Um, in, in some respects, I think it it kind of makes it more exciting. I mean, maybe partly because. Uh, Angelia Apadura is enough of an outsider. Her chances of success are, are probably fairly low. Um, uh, yet, nevertheless, it's it's going to raise the profile of um, or, or uh, a lot of electoral activists are going to, um, you know, be coming out and and uh, and maybe it could play a really actually positive role in terms of you know she's going to the picket line. So like maybe that's where. Um, this will get centered. At any rate, it's it's exciting in a bit of the way that we saw, you know, the Bernie campaign or, or these other campaigns were exciting, where uh, actually the issues that people care about are finally something that's in the public conversation. So, um, yeah, so that's kind of kind of the place that we're in right now. An interesting one. I mentioned the I think I mentioned the 20. Uh, 2018 2022 elections here in Ontario and the rise and then collapse of NDP fortunes uh, that created a really strange and and ultimately um, a kind of a failed uh, strategy by labor during the the first four years of Ford uh, there was a lot of uh, momentum in the spring of 2019 to build 
something like a protest movement that could have uh, laid the foundations for a bigger fight back. There was a, a student walkout of about 100,000 students in April. There was a big teachers' protest in April. This is 2019. Uh, there, there was um, a lot of things bubbling at that time. That was when Ford was booed at the uh, Raptors championship ceremony, which was incredible. It was this real moment of, uh, it was a real vote. It was, it was the, the closest thing to a real vote that Ford ever faced. And uh, that, that uh, momentum and opportunity uh, was funneled into what was essentially a long-term campaign by the OFL to elect the NDP in 2022. But it didn't go anywhere after the summer of 2019. It kind of declared a truce with Ford in order to focus on the 2019 federal election. By the time the dust settled with that election, the pandemic had hit. And essentially, there nothing happened for two years until earlier this year, the OFL relaunched uh, a campaign around, uh, they had an activist assembly, they, they called for protests on May Day, but the result was the NDP lost 800,000 votes, and you could reasonably argue the majority of those were working class votes. And uh, it was a real huge setback for the NDP, and it just completely blew up whatever the OFL strategy was. And of course, Unifor, which still has a very big presence and probably an outsized presence in Ontario compared to other provinces because of the auto workers. Uh, the Unifor uh, was, you know, they've been going through their own um, turmoil of this past year and they were not aligned with the NDP as well. In fact, D, uh, Jerry Diaz, their former president who went down in the scandal earlier this year, he had been uh, uh, collaborating with Ford around de Havilland, one of the, the, the plants around EV investments, the electric vehicle investments in different plants around the province. Essentially, he had been lobbying Doug Ford and Prime Minister Trudeau for massive public subsidies, corporate welfare for the, the green transition with uh, automobiles. And it wasn't a green transition around building trains or anything like that. It's a green transition around private auto, which you know, feeds the, the logic of highway expansion, which Doug Ford is happy to do. So the, the fragmented strategy of labor in Ontario isn't even unified. It's not even unified around the NDP. And the section that is aligned with the NDP had a campaign that was entirely electoral for four years and just didn't, um, didn't mobilize the power of the membership. I feel like now that the election is over and that proved to be a failure and we're in this high inflation moment uh i i think that there is a recognition that there has to be a new direction uh whether or not that will actually pan out uh in the long run i don't know i i think the allegiances to the ndp run so deep because there's um there's just been a, a real i don't know I wouldn't even, it's a kind of a cynicism a deep cynicism cynicism in the labor leadership that they can achieve anything more than electing the NDP. I don't think they really have faith in the union membership or the idea that the membership have the power to, to make huge changes in society. Uh, and, and the NDP is part plays a role in that as well. It isn't uh, just wheeling and dealing between the NDP and, and union leaders. They are integrated at a certain level. I know that's true in, 
BC as well as Ontario and, and other provinces where the NDP are quite prominent. Um, I'm sure, David, you could talk about the NDP in Manitoba and the unions. So, yeah, it's a really complex question and it, it, it goes from the provincial and federal level down to the municipal level as well. I, I wouldn't want to bore you with the details of municipal politics in Ontario, but all across the province, there are those questions about how could these councillors not be campaigning on housing or not be campaigning on fixing long-term care, which is under, there are municipal long-term care in Ontario. Uh, there aren't, um, even at the municipal level, there aren't NDP councillors who are uh, supporting labor. So it's a deep, deep problem. And uh, the question of an independent like, labor left should be posed at this time, even if simply to push the NDP to the left. All right. I mean, I will just say that in, in Manitoba, where the, you know, we've had a, a conservative government since uh, 2016 that replaced an NDP government that had been in office since 1999, um, we've seen very little fight back whatsoever against the, the PCs. Um, Manitoba labor would make both Ontario and BC labor look like militant in, in comparison. And, um, you know, all the eggs uh, of the labor leaderships, uh, labor leadership have been placed in in the basket of electing the NDP in in 2023, and they're in a situation where the provincial uh, PC government is extremely unpopular uh, because of what it's done through the pandemic, and the NDP are hoping just to have a kind of, a kind of to coast to a win in in the fall of 2023. Um, they're really trying to do as little as possible and just allow the the government's unpopularity to to drag it uh, drag it down. Uh, and so that's a situation where there's been no, you know, basically no space within unions for uh, critically assessing the NDP uh, and people's sense of what's possible has been so lowered because um, it's been so, so long since they've, for most people, that they've been involved in any form of collective action, um, that it's, um, it's, it's, it's a challenging situation. So obviously much smaller province than BC or Ontario, but just for the sake of putting that into the mix, I will share that. Um, thank you so much, uh, Tara and Doug, especially Tara, given your jet lag, um, <laughs> for this discussion. And um, we'll be back with more episodes of Victor's Children. Thank you, David. Thank you. That was great. That's it for this episode of Victor's Children. I'd like to thank Jonathan Croker, the producer of Victor's Children, without whom the podcasts wouldn't be possible. I'd also like to thank Posey Legg, who designed the graphic for Victor's Children. If you found the episode worth listening to, please do tell other people about the show, since word-of-mouth recommendations are especially helpful. If you don't subscribe through your preferred podcast app, please do. And while you're there, please give the show a high rating. It helps to promote us. If you have a suggestion for an episode or some other kind of constructive feedback, feel free to be in touch with me. You can contact me through victorschildren at gmail.com.